Tristan, would you be able to hit the slides for me tonight? Okay. I'll try to give you heads up when we're there. Um, I'm going to pray for uh, Pastor Nathan tonight before we get started, just to pray that God would heal his throat and his his voice and just bring him back to good health. Um, He contacted us yesterday, and so... I rushed to get done for this. So uh, if this is a little different or a little strange, I'm sorry. Um, But God's Word is sufficient, and it is uh, powerful, and the Holy Spirit will do what He wants regardless of who I am. And so let's pray first, and then I want to uh, look at Matthew chapter 2. God, we we come together around this Word today. clearly insufficient to um, understand all that is in here. Your word tells us that only through the Holy Spirit may we know. And so we ask that your spirit would give us understanding of that today. Uh, I ask specifically and even selfishly that you would help me to remember the things that I have studied and um, that things would be clear as they come out of my mouth, not for my benefit, but for your word to, to be um, honored and revered in the way that it should. And God, we, we do ask uh, for our, our pastor that you would heal his body and uh, bring him back to us as quick as possible. Help his throat to, to get better where he, he would be able to uh, preach your word. And um, even for his family that you would just get him back to full health so that he can... Uh, be with his family and take care of his family well. And we ask that in your name. Uh, today we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I was planning to preach this on December 17th. And so uh, I'm, I'm a little goofy when it comes to Christmas time. And my wife was frustrated with me that we didn't sing Christmas music today because we're after Thanksgiving and we're after. We're after all that, so in her mind, we're good to go, so we can sing all the Christmas music. However, yeah. Okay. There is a... Oh, I, I know. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> he was watching out for somebody, but I think they're out there. Is your wife in the car? Okay, no, that, that's what he was. He said a Toyota Senna was lights on and running, so he was worried about that. But she's probably out there, so that that was I, I, didn't, I didn't didn't mean for him to go. Um, so for me, at Christmas, I wait till the first Sunday of Advent for us to do Christmas music, and in in the church liturgy, the way that that the the church calendar is is formed, four Sundays before Christmas are the seasons of Advent are the Sundays of Advent. And this is a a time after we follow Thanksgiving, we are in a time of anticipation. Not like you're anticipating the gifts on Christmas morning as as kids do and even I do at times too. It's not that kind of anticipation. It is a remembrance of the anticipation of Christ coming. And so we are remembering the Old Testament awaiting a Savior to be born for the first time. 
And for us as a church, we await the Savior to come back again. And so it is still appropriate for us to, to celebrate the season of Advent. And it's usually the first four Sundays, or it's always, not usually, it's always the first four Sundays before Christmas. Well, the way that Thanksgiving runs, sometimes you have five Sundays. In the last two years, we've had five Sundays. So this is the fifth Sunday. Then you come into the Christmas season, and this is all, it all has to do with this sermon, so I'm not just rambling. You come into the Christmas season, and technically, and, and according to the church calendar, the Christmas season begins on Christmas Day. And so we sing at Christmas time, even during Advent, the 12 days of Christmas, my true love gave to me. The 12 days of Christmas actually run from December 25th through January 5th. And so we always celebrate it before time, and we're not supposed to. Uh, and so that would be the season of Christmas. And so sometimes you have one or two Sundays between Christmas Day and what we call in the church calendar Epiphany. Well, Epiphany is January 6th. So that's where we enter into today. Epiphany is the time that we celebrate or we remember the wise men or the magi coming to celebrate the birth of Christ, coming to find the Savior. And so I know we've had discussions around here, and it's somewhat of a joke, and I'm really sad Dot Dot's not in here, because I know she's really hardcore about this, that when people set up their nativity, they usually set the wise men a little bit further away than in the nativity, because according to what we believe is the wise men may not have been there at the nativity. And we'll get into that in just a second. So people set the wise men off a little bit, or even across the room, which is somewhat humorous to me. Um, and today, as I've, as I've studied to preach on what is called epiphany, and I'll get into that in just a second, we are looking at the wise men coming. And I, I would be in favor of putting the wise men in the nativity. The reason is you can use that nativity to teach to your kids, what every person in that nativity was there for. And so the reason that I would say it'd be okay to put the wise men with the nativity is because the wise men had a very specific point. And the reason that I believe they are in Scripture in coming to see the baby Jesus born is because they represent Gentiles being able to know Christ. Because they were not Jews. And this was the announcement to the rest of the world, that the Savior was born. And so, this is a, an interesting thought, that when, when we sing songs like, We Three Kings, or I Saw Three Ships Come Sailing In, ships were a uh, desert term for a camel. So it's not ships into the harbor, it's camels coming in. We're singing about the wise men. And we are singing about... Uh, them coming, and because they came, that also tells us that we, who are Gentiles, not being Jews, are able to know Christ. And so when you teach through the nativity and you look at the nativity scene, teach about the wise men, because that's how we can know who Christ is. That is a picture of us being able to know. And so today we want to look at Matthew chapter 2, uh, 1 through 12, and and. Look at the wise men coming in. Matthew is the only gospel writer who mentions them. 
But he has a specific purpose. The, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is meant to teach us that Christ is king. Well, in a minute, we will see one king who was very offended that the king of the Jews has been born. And so I think that that's why Matthew put them in, put this story in his gospel. And so let us read this one more time, and uh, then we'll look at this. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." When Herod summoned the wise men, or then, sorry, verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until they had come to rest, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So a few, a few thoughts before we get to the points of the sermon. Is that we need to understand why the wise men are not thought to have attended the nativity, but came later in time. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus and his family are in a house now. They're no longer at the manger. It, says, it mentions that the wise men came to a house, and they, uh, they find him there. Some believe that because Matthew's gospel states the wise men saw the star when it rose, that they began their journey when they first saw the star, And coming from the east, it took quite a bit of time for them to travel to Jerusalem. I've seen some estimations of 750 to 1700 miles that they traveled. Like, that's a long way. It's not like we have an airplane to take. Um, It's going to take them a while. And then there's the final point of reference that I would say is probably the most convincing. Is uh, that it comes comes after our passage in Matthew 2.16. That Herod sent to kill all the male children in Bethlehem. Two years old and under. And so from these references it is believed that Jesus could have been almost two years old at this point. when When the wise men finally came. But we want to see in this passage that Matthew is painting a very grim picture. And the title of this sermon is In the Darkness, Light. And so I want us to see, and uh, Tristan, if you go to the first slide, that there are, in the darkness, there are those troubled by the birth of Christ. One through three says that this is in the days of Herod the king when they came. And that they asked, where is the king of the Jews? And, And Matthew is very... Pointed in stating that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. 
So Matthew's pointing out the fact that the, the king who is in power was troubled by this baby that is born king of the Jews. And so as we, as we see from uh, chapter 1, Matthew gives us this long genealogy. And I hope that you read through it, and I really hope you go find Andrew Peterson's song of Matthew's begats. It's worth listening to. He sings through all of these. Um, But you see that Jesus' lineage traces back to the time of the deportation to Babylon, to further back to King David, to even further back all the way to Abraham. And so Jesus, according to Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1, is the rightful heir to the throne. And so he is the king of the Jews. He is the one who is to be on the throne. And uh, Herod is actually a usurper to the throne. He is an Idumean, and he was placed in power by Rome. And so we want to see that there were two types of people who were troubled by the birth of Christ. And one, we see um, we could label them unbelievers, and Herod the Great would fit into this category. Now, a little bit about Herod. He's not the same Herod that... Jesus faced at his trial. That was Herod's son, Herod Antipater. Um, uh, Antipater? Did I say that right? I can't, re- Antip- I can't remember how you say his name. Herod the Great is the one that's here, and he is the oldest son of Antipater. So he is called great because he was this very shrewd politician. He was a great builder, a great soldier, a great... Speech writer. He could move the people to war. He could make the people submit. He would build these great, fantastic cities and great, fantastic edifices. And so in, in history, he is known as Herod the Great because he did all these great things. And um, at the arrival of the, the wise men, Herod the Great was, was nearing the end of his life. And he had fought ruthlessly to defend his power. And so everything that he wanted in life was to remain in power. And he was so awful that he killed his brother-in-law, he killed his wife's grandfather, his, two of his sons, a couple of his wives, all in the, the way of maintaining his power because he thought they wanted to take it. So you see this man that is ruling this country, and he is an evil killer. I mean, he's basically a killer. And all his power now, after he hears of these wise men coming in, what, there's, there's this king of the Jews? So now he's, all his power is once again to search out and to find out that one that wants to take over his throne. And so he's, he's on a mission. And he calls in all the chief priests and all the, the uh, officials and the scribes. Basically, he called the whole Sanhedrin together to say, tell me what's going on here. Where, where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they tell him, they, they, they tell him about the prophecy from Micah that he was to be born in Bethlehem. And so he has the location, but he has nothing else. And so he then grabs these, these wise men, and it says he secretly draws them in. Because he doesn't want anybody to know that he's afraid. He doesn't want other people to know, like, already the Sanhedrin's come in, and that was clearly visible with all those high priests coming in. But then he secretly gets these wise men because he, he's a schemer. And he calls the, the wise men in and, and he wants to know about 
what, what, what is up with this? Who is this king of the Jews? And he tells them, go to Bethlehem. So we don't even know if the wise men knew that he was to be born in Bethlehem. They just followed the star. Herod actually gives them that information. He sends them to Bethlehem. And so they go to Bethlehem, but he, he tells them, when you go, come back and tell me so I can go worship him too. But we know better than that. As you read through that, as you heard Mr. Martin read it or me read it, did you think, oh, that is, that is exactly what he wanted to do? Even reading through it, Matthew presents it in a way that it's like you don't even believe Herod when he tells the, the wise men that. He's got another plan. And he wants to kill the baby. It says that he is troubled. He is, that, that word is like to shake up, to stir up, to agitate. He has this fear of losing his throne. And he calls them in and he's, he's scared to death to try to get this information. And what, what we should see from Herod is that Herod is, is the epitome of an unbeliever. Herod loves his sin. He loves his power. He loves the world that he lives in. And he's holding on to it with everything he can. And he's willing to take out anybody that is going to get in the way of that. And so Herod is, is in love with his sin. He's in love with all that he's accomplished. The accolades. Herod the Great. And anything that downplays his greatness is a threat. And to an unbeliever, Jesus is a threat. Because the coming of a Savior means that we must be saved from something. Unbelievers are blind to their need for a Savior. And so when we hear the gospel go out, and and they're an unbeliever, they're offended to be told that they're a sinner. And unless the Spirit opens their eyes to their sin and they, they, their, their need, then they're against anything that, that says otherwise. And so as we, as we enter into this Christmas time, this Advent season and the Christmas season, we must be prepared for the world to, hella, the world to hate the celebration of the coming of the Savior. They may sing the songs, they may re, you know, love the, the jingles that, that we play on the radio or that, that are even religious, but they truly hate the Savior if they're an unbeliever. Because the entrance of a Savior means it is true that mankind needs a Savior. And the gospel, while it is good news to the one who has the ears and eyes open to the truth, it's offensive to those who live in their sin and strive to maintain the world at all costs. And even Jesus, later on in John 15, tells His disciples the same thing. And I almost wonder if He's looking back to this point. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But Herod isn't the only one that is troubled. It says that all Jerusalem with him is troubled. Now, that, that's interesting. It's only five little words, but it tells something very important for us to remember. The text that we see here, that the wise men didn't go straight to Herod to investigate. They enter in Jerusalem and they ask everybody they see, like, where's the star? Like, where's this baby born of the Jews? So the wise men stirred up the, the city. They stirred up all the people And then that message got to Herod, and then he calls them in. But they are disturbed too. 
They're troubled. It's the same word that he uses for Herod is used for them. They're agitated. They're disturbed. They are stirred up. And Calvin, John Calvin makes a very important thought here. He states that the reason that they may be stirred up, that they may be troubled, is because they were accustomed to distresses and they were calloused over the tyrant rulership of Herod and that they dreaded a change which might produce even greater calamities. Oh no, somebody's coming to take over the throne. We're going to be in war again. We're going to have all this stuff. Herod's going to be off the chain. You know, like he's going to go crazy. They, they feared what might happen. And he, he says, if you'll go to the, there you go. He says, for they were so completely worn down and almost wasted by continued wars that their wretched and cruel bondage appeared to them not only tolerable but desirable, provided it were accompanied by peace. This shows how little they had profited under God's chastisements, for they were so benumbed and stupefied that the promised redemption and salvation almost stank in their nostrils. These people were hopeless. They had thrown away the hope and the desire of the grace which had been promised to them. And when they hear that the baby had been born, they didn't believe it. They had been calloused to the awful dictatorship and rulership that has happened for years. And so they were hopeless. The afflicted were hopeless. The text reveals that their fear... In the, the arrival and announcement of the wise men, that they, they would rather stay in the broken condition that they were in rather than stir up the waters and pursue the one who would bring the true kingdom. And it reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote, and this on the next slide for me, Tristan. There we go. From his book, The Weight of Glory, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. They would rather stay in what they thought was a peaceful situation, even though it was a false peace, it was a temporal peace, rather than seek the one who could bring them everlasting peace. In many ways, we too, under the pressure of affliction, we can reserve ourselves to living under this broken state. Because there's ease and a superficial peace, we've learned how to make it work. It is what it is. Rather than pursue the Savior and, and, and hold on to hope against all hope, we can become numb and stupefied, like Calvin stated, under affliction when, where we begin to lose all our hope. And this Christmas, remember that the coming of Christ is a fulfillment of, of part of that hope. And all that should do is fuel and drive us to hope in the second coming of Christ. That He is coming again. You do not need to reserve yourself to just getting by in your affliction. Christ is your hope He came in human flesh. Not only that, but He came to be afflicted in our place. The great mediator who is the Savior and the King also sent His Spirit who is our comforter and our helper. 
We do not have to be content with the ways of the world and life here and now, which is fleeting, but we can pursue after life that is everlasting. Christ has come to be God with us and to save His people from their sins. There is hope in any affliction. Do not live in fear. This is great news of great joy. But Matthew continues to paint a dark picture that there's also another group of people who are, I put blind, you can go to the next slide, Tristan, for me. But it would probably better be able to be said that they are hard-hearted in the birth of Christ. Because they have some of the scripture, they have some of the prophecy, but they don't believe it. It's head knowledge. Herod summons those who would have the knowledge of where this Messiah would be prophesied to be born. And he calls the religious elite, the Sanhedrin, the ones who had the scriptures, the prophecies, the scrolls. And they were not shy. They told him, and and I can imagine that they were probably like, this might be a little scary to tell him that because he might lose his head, so to speak, and go off because they knew that he was this killer. But they tell him, yes, there is a prophecy and he is to be born in Bethlehem. And you know, one of the things that is interesting is all of a sudden there's not this exodus of people out of Jerusalem going to Bethlehem to look for the baby. You know, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are only six miles apart. That would be like going from Bartlett High School to Wolf Chase. Six miles. And the Bible says nothing except for the wise men leave Jerusalem and go to Bethlehem. The scribes and the Pharisees and the, the chief priests, none of them went. They knew the prophecy, but all it was was head knowledge. They had the information, but they didn't believe it to be true. They didn't hold it to be true. And as we can see later on in the Gospels, and I know that we've been taught here, that the Messiah entering into the picture threatened their power and and their prestige. They were the religious elite. They had all the answers. They wanted Herod to call them in because they wanted to look like they knew everything. Because they did know it all. But they didn't believe it. They didn't hold it to be true. And so him coming in is a little bit like Herod, except it's in a different group of people. They feared losing their power. They feared losing their place as the religious elite because this now king of the Jews has come in. So now they might, they might lose some of their, their footing. And they were good with the way things currently were. And this should be a warning to us. We, we have more knowledge of spiritual things than anybody in history And we can fill our minds with it. We can sit here every week, day in and day out. We can sit at our desk every morning and study the Word of God. And if all we're doing is filling our head with knowledge, it's not enough. Like Matthew Henry stated, that the Jews regarded not the Christ, but the Gentiles inquired Him. And many times those who are nearest to the means are furthest from the end. And let, let me read this too. John 1.11 states that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They proved that they knew the scripture, but they did not find that scripture to motivate them to seek him out. 
And J.C. Ryle, I think that quote's up there too, Tristan. Um, Yeah. J.C. Ryle says, Let us all beware of resting satisfied with head knowledge. It is an excellent thing when rightly used, but a man may have much of it and perish everlastingly. So what is the state of our hearts? This is the great question. A little grace is better than many gifts. Gifts alone save no one, but grace leads on to glory. So as we, as we see these chief priests and these uh, scribes come in, we need to see them as representing us in a way. We have all this information. We have all this readily available. We can look it up on the internet. We can get Logos, Bible software, and things like that to help us study it. But if all we're doing is filling our head with knowledge and it does not affect our heart, then we're still just as lost as Herod. Do you have a vast array of head knowledge but are blind to your need for a Savior? Have you been to all the VBS summer camps? Have you grown up in church? Have you, uh, do you hold to the specific date when you knew you were saved, but you still don't see any work of the Spirit in your life today? Heart knowledge leads to repentance and change in the life of a believer. It leads a man to follow after the commands of God because he has had his heart made alive to the truth. It's not just words on a page or like the scribes. It's not just a word on a scroll, but it's in his heart. The religious elite were simply that. They were religious. And they went through all the forms and the acts of religion, but they knew not the Savior. They knew all the songs. They gathered with the people every week. They did all the, even the the service things, but they did not know the truth because they did not know the Savior. Don't simply have a head knowledge without a knowledge that changes you from the inside out, beginning with your heart. This was the darkness that existed in Jerusalem as the wise men entered in. And I would like to one day maybe meet them and ask them about that, but at that point it won't matter. But... How they were received. Because the Bible does not present a good picture for them. People thought they were crazy. They were troubled at the wise men coming. But they had seen a light. And this is in the darkness. This is the light. Tristan, if you'll go to point number three for me. Those who were wise in the birth of Christ. It says they came from the east. And they came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In this passage, the the church has mulled over and over and over and attempted to come to conclusions that simply aren't in the scripture. And we look to church history and we we assume things and we seek things out. And you know, we, we write songs about different things. And not all of those things are found here in this passage. And the problem is we can get caught up in a lot of the details and trying to figure it out and miss the point. We don't know really who these wise men or magi were. Good, good idea that they came from Persia or Media or, or Babylon and they may have received this prophecy maybe way back when Daniel was in Babylon and prophesied about the rising star, and then they see this star and they come, we don't know. We know what this says. 
we have seen this star and we have come to worship him. And they're there. And they are, they are these guys that they know the stars. That's their job. And all of a sudden, this new thing appears in the sky and they go running after it. And some, some people talk about them being kings. That, is, that is, comes from Psalm 72 and Isaiah 60 that talks about kings would bring gifts. So they're like, well, these guys brought gifts, so maybe they were kings. But there's nothing in this passage that says that. It says they were magi, which actually means like magician or astrologer. And the Catholic Church has attributed names to them, Melchior, Balthazar, Caspar, stating that one came from India, one came from Egypt, one came from Greece, that they were subsequently baptized by Thomas, that their bones were discovered in the church of St. Sophia at Constantinople, and they were later transferred to Milan and, not Tennessee, uh, Milan, and were finally brought to the great cathedral of Cologne. However, none of this is found in there. And so those things are history trying to figure out what's going on. And another belief is that there weren't just three. There, were, there may have been 14 of them. And we all know that why they thought there were three. Because there were three gifts that they brought. There may have been three. But there may have been hundreds. Who knows? To stir up the whole city, there could have been quite a few of them. And they bring these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, another thing, another question that people always ask is, what about this star? People say, maybe it's an asteroid. Maybe it's the planet Jupiter. Maybe it's Jupiter and Saturn meeting in the sky and, and creating this sign of a fish that they followed. Or maybe it was a luminary hanging in the sky. Maybe it was an asteroid Or maybe simply it was Shekinah glory like the people in Exodus followed in the wilderness. Because it does not act like a star. It moves. And then it stops over the place where Jesus was. And so there's lots of questions. And we can get tied up in all of these things. Wondering and thinking and pondering. And it's not that that's bad. But we're missing the point. One commentator said that all those things are left out of the picture in order that the full emphasis may be placed on this one thing. Namely, we have come to worship Him. And we get tied up in this. And, and we, should, we should be thinking about what it says here. Now, it's interesting too how God works. To the Jews, to like Joseph and Mary and the shepherds, how did He announce the coming of the baby, Jesus? With an angel. Like they understood what an angel was. And so like they, they believed in that and that's how God announced it. With these guys, they watched the stars. So He brought something that got their attention. And so the star was like this general revelation that drew them. But then when they reach Herod, actually before that, it says they, they knew that the king of Jews has come. So something in special revelation, whether it was Daniel's prophecy or something like that, they knew that this was a sign that the king of the Jews had come. And so they had come to worship Him. They were drawn by God and came to worship the baby. And when they arrived, they immediately fell down and worshipped Him. Now, what's interesting is when you read in other places of Scripture, when somebody comes and falls down at, at a human's feet to worship them, they are always corrected. I am not that one. Stand up. Don't worship me. 
I believe this happened to like John the Baptist. It happened to like Simon Peter. And they're like, get up. I am not that one. Even an angel was worshipped at one point, And he says, you do not worship me. But they are not corrected when they fall down at the feet of Jesus and they worship him. And Matthew is teaching us, he's telling us, this is the God-man. Yes, he's man. Yes, he came in human flesh, but he is worthy to be worshipped. And they, uh, they came to bring him glory and honor as the king that he was. It says in John 1, we read it earlier, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. And they worship Him. And I believe that them worshiping and them coming to see Him, in my opinion, means that they were believers. They believed that this was the Savior. And they bring these three gifts. And... In Scripture, these three gifts are not uncommon. We read them all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Gold shows up everywhere. Frankincense shows up in the Old Testament all over the place. Myrrh is all throughout the Bible as well. And they all have multiple uses. So it could be that they just brought what they had that was the most valuable thing. It may not have a symbolism. But it could go with what the church father Origen taught, that they brought gold as if to a king. Because gold was often associated with kings. King David, King Solomon, think about how much gold they had. And they, Solomon lined the temple with gold. Like gold was everywhere. Frankincense is in the Old Testament. Frankincense as if it's incense as to God. So they brought frankincense to this God baby. And so frankincense is often in the Old Testament used in the worship in the temple. And there's even a place where in Exodus 30 where it says that it's not for people, but it's only for Yahweh. So they bring this thing that is for Yahweh, and they lay it at the baby's feet. And then the idea that myrrh is to one who was mortal, one who is human. And myrrh was mostly used, but not always, but mostly in reference to mortal man. It was used as a perfume to make life more pleasant. It's used as an anesthetic. They could eat it or put it on a wound and it would numb it. And it was in his, uh, uh, used in a bur- uh, to make a burial less repulsive, preparing the body for burial. And so it's not, it's not known, it's not mentioned in here if these wise men thought of those things for that reason. But these were the gifts they brought. And I, I hold to God's sovereignty well enough that that very well could be the picture He's painting for us. That this baby was a king. And he deserved the gift of a king. This baby was a human. And he would one day die for humanity. So they brought myrrh. And then he was God in flesh. So they brought frankincense to worship him with. And they brought that which was costly to worship him. And Jesus says in John 6, uh, 37, Those whom God draws to himself will come no matter the cost. No matter the sacrifice, no matter the hostility or persecution. In John 6.37, Jesus Himself says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
They traveled probably a great distance over a great amount of time. And they brought costly gifts because they knew that this baby who was born was worthy to be seen and worshipped and uh, glorified. So we don't want to get lost in the details of, of this journey We don't want to get lost in all the assumptions or the, hey, what about this? What about this? Those things are good to think about. But what we need to understand is that the Gentiles came. Those who were not Jews. Those who didn't have all of the Scripture that the Jews did. And they came to worship this Jewish king. And when we come to Christmas, when we come to our time of celebration, don't get lost in all the gifts. And you hear this every year especially at church. Don't get lost in all the gifts. Come and worship Christ. He far outweighs any gift you will ever receive. You could could take all the gifts you've ever received, put them together, and He still far outweighs it. Don't get lost in all of the worldly pomp and splendor of commercialism. Get lost in the awesomeness that God came in human flesh to live on this earth, to die for us and to rise again so that we may have life. Jesus came to a dark and dying world to be the light and the life. And the little nativity scene on your front lawn is not a sweet sentimentality of the season. It's the only gift worth receiving. It pictures what is the only thing worth all of things. This baby is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the Son of the Most High. He is Jesus, the one who will save His people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Christ the Lord, the one true King. So come, behold the wondrous mystery. Let's pray. And I want to pray Philippians chapter 2 for us today. That this would be our prayer as we uh, end or before we go into the Lord's Supper. Philippians 2, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And Father, we ask that we would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, we would count others more significant than ourselves. That we would uh, look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that we would have the mind of Christ. That though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, you have highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Lord, may in our Christmas time, may that be our goal that we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.